Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at thesustainabilityagenda.com. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Daniel Aldrich to the podcast. Daniel is Professor of Political Science and Director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program at Northeastern University. A main body of his research focuses on recovery after natural disasters. His most recent book is Building Resilience, Social Capital in Post-Disaster Recovery, highlighting how relationships among people in a disaster zone are a critical engine for recovery after a disaster. Thank you very much, Daniel, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Can you tell us a little bit about your background, Daniel, and your current work focus? I'm particularly interested in the work you do at the Security and Resilience Studies program. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, I didn't begin in this field when I was training as a graduate student. And then my very first job, we're actually on a pretty niche area of focus, uh, Japanese politics, not necessarily of interest to most people in the world. And then in 2005, as I was starting my very first job, Uh, Our home, our neighborhood, our whole city where we lived, New Orleans, uh, were submerged by the failing levees uh, during Hurricane Katrina. So I had to switch pretty quickly after that into this field of studying what it means to go through a shock, to go through a disaster, and then hopefully bounce back. So since 2005, I've tried to understand not only here in North America where I live, but also in Japan. I do a lot of research there, you know, around the world. What is it that communities need to do to get ready for the kind of shocks that unfortunately, I think we all know too well these days, right? I think some of us are dealing with the shocks of extreme weather events. We have fires and we have floods. We have pandemics going on right now. Certainly the in some countries right now, terrorism is a major press. So we have all these ongoing uh, challenges, the societal stability. My research tries to understand what is it that we need to do to make our cities, our communities, our neighborhoods uh, better able to handle these kind of shocks and then to bounce back afterwards. So yeah, so now I direct the Security and Resilience Studies program at Northeastern. So we have uh, a good number of master's degree students, some of whom go on to PhDs, who want to sort of go out in the world and work at a uh, resilience officer's uh, agency or go work for FEMA or go work for a nonprofit or go work for the private sector and bring with them the skills of, for the agency, for the organization they're working for to understand what it is that they, they need to do right, to get that agency organization ready for these kind of shocks and hits. Yeah, very interesting. Now, you, you mentioned uh, some of these uh, uh, crises that uh, weather related or, or environmental that, that uh, many, many places are witnessing right now with the fires and the floods and so forth, uh, not to mention the underlying uh, growing uh, major existential and other environmental crises. Um, what, what in particular is on your mind? Is there a particular aspects of this current situation that is keeping you awake um, you thinking about most? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think all of us are really seeing the the daily impact of climate change in ways that maybe even a decade ago, we didn't really think about that much. You know, I live in Boston on the coast. Uh, the number of floods that we're getting here in Boston certainly has increased. The number of days subway stations are literally underwater. We just saw this in New York City right a few weeks ago with Hurricane Ida, right, where we literally had what looks like a waterfall, underground waterfall there in parts of the city. So I think what I'm thinking about a lot is 
how are cities, especially because really, right, we know in the next few years, around two thirds of all the world's population will be in a city, right? By around 2050 or so, maybe a little bit later, but most, most of the world will be in a city. Uh, and cities, of course, are these tremendously dynamic, innovative, very diverse locations, right? So what can cities do? to try and think through these shocks. And you know, my big, my big worry right now is we've invested so much in our cities in thinking about physical infrastructure, right? That is to say, right, our roads are uh, varieties of, of uh, hardened infrastructure, right? Things like higher berms or, or seawalls, that kind of stuff. But I'm worried that cities aren't thinking enough about what I would call social or civic infrastructure where social infrastructure, those are the spaces that make the city cohesive and collaborative, right? So that would be parks and public transportation, community centers, uh, places for NGOs to meet. And the civic infrastructure would be the, the bonds, the bonding, bridging, linking ties we have between each other. So I'm, I'm worried that cities are so focused right now, uh, even with President Biden finally pushing an infrastructure bill, right? Uh, that a lot of the interesting stuff that is hard to see, right? The civic, the social infrastructure, that's being overlooked. That's keeping me awake right now. What I, what I find very interesting about your research is this idea about the what you call the civic, I guess, infrastructure, but the, the social ties, the social bonds, the links, those kind of things that uh, maybe have been overlooked, um, uh, but the, just how how vitally important they are in terms of dealing with uh, responding to uh, disasters and and also in some ways uh, rebuilding after disasters uh, of, of one kind or another. Um, so uh, just to begin with, maybe if you could talk a little bit about resilience, uh, what does it mean um, and, and to what extent uh there seems to be a lot a lot of focus now on, on resilience i i guess we've seen over time there's been a, a lot of talk on sustainability sustainable development uh growing into resilience in regeneration as well um where does resilience fit in and, and why does it matter yeah you know i start step one back <clears throat> i know there's a lot of criticism actually of the word resilience I, i've seen this uh, especially from some of my colleagues uh who are are very actively involved in things like racial justice, for example, and even colleagues in Europe un uninvolved in those discussions, but more interested in the in the source, source of the term. Um, the word resilience has been criticized with the argument that this sounds like you're, in a sense, saying during a shock, what really matters is not the the state or the the government's role, but local people's roles. Yes, I've seen and, this. I was surprised. I, I I wasn't aware of that, but yes, yeah. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting point, right? Because certainly some governments, and let's just name them, right? Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher's Britain, for example, Ronald Reagan's America, a number of periods in time, uh, maybe even uh, even under Trump as well, a number of, of, of people have argued, decision makers have argued, well, you know, really at the end of the day, uh, these are decisions and uh, assistance that need to be given from local communities. That is to say, we're stepping back at some level from the work of the state. We're stepping back from the work of the government. And, and then that, that could be true. That doesn't make the term resilience any less important, though. And, and here's why. I think for a long time, we thought about disasters primarily in terms of two things. Right? One was sort of stopping them. Right? And by the way, this is a pretty common thing I see in Japan. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure that's built in Japan is to stop disasters from happening. That would mean, for example, um, most buildings in Japan, almost all of them built since the 1870s now, have very good seismic dampening systems. They're really good at, at not cracking under an earthquake, right? So there, there is no disaster if during the earthquake the building is fine. Or big seawalls, right? When the tsunami comes, this huge wave, 40, 50, 60 feet hits ashore, the Japanese government has built hundreds of kilometers of seawalls, right? So that was one approach to stop the disaster. The other part was recovery. Uh, a lot of our institutions, especially here in America, are built around this idea of building back 
as was, right? So for example, FEMA, their mandate until only recently was, we will only give you money to rebuild a damaged building as was. So if your damaged building was literally in the floodplain, that's no big deal. We'll give you money to build it back as was. Your hospital couldn't handle the floods. Don't worry, keep it where it was as it was, right? So literally recovery, building back as things were and, and stopping it, right? So this sort of protective shell, those are two ways. Uh, as, as research went on, and especially I, I like the work in the 1990s, people like Nakagawa and Shah, for example, really early work, uh, people like Russell Dines, um, University of Delaware, they began to think, well, look, there, there, some disasters will get through, right? No matter what things you put in place to keep society safe, right? You can build a huge seawall, let's say like Japan did, it might crack and the water might get through. And now you've trapped those waters behind the wall in the city itself, right? So there's a, or people maybe feel like you shouldn't evacuate, right? Because the water. So in other words, you can have in mind one shock and build something to, to stop that one shock. But the simple reality is maybe that won't be the shock, right? Maybe it'll be a volcano next time. Or maybe it will be, who knows, a flood from the inter- inside the city, right? So these scholars began thinking, what about the process, not just of rebuilding as was, again, FEMA's mandate for many years, right? Rebuild as was, but rather what can this, the, the people or the residents there do to bounce beyond, right? To bounce forward, to, to, to recover in a way that brings together resources and goals of the community and builds them forward in a way they're not the same as they were before the shock. They're not as vulnerable, let's say. They're not as fragmented, perhaps. Right? Whatever, whatever our goal is here, uh, resilience is the ability for an, or a community, a city, an organization, a society to go through a shock and to transform. That's the, uh, that's the highest uh, goal here of, re- of resilience, to transform, um, not just to mitigate a shock, not just to adapt to it, right? So mitigation, again, would be, you know, I build a seawall in front of my house. I build waterproof uh, a waterproof um, uh, front door, something like that, right, to keep the flood out. That's mitigation, to mitigate it, or, or, I, or I give money to people afterwards. Right. To adapt means you know, get used to the concept, right? So maybe we, uh, we have a bigger wall there. To transform means to thinking through, okay, how do we live with this shock? Given the likelihood that climate change is here to stay and will only get worse, what can we transform in our societies, right? And that's going to be more than just physical infrastructure. And that's why I like this, this field of work. Resilience means it's not just about right, a building that can go through an earthquake and not have any cracks. It's not just about a, a concrete wall to keep out floods. It's about the people in the community, right? What are they going to do? What about their livelihoods, their jobs, their psychological and psychosocial profiles? What's going to happen to their communications, their collaboration, right? So all that is in this big bucket that we call resilience. The ability of these communities, not just to rebuild as was or to, to stop a shock from happening, but recognize that some shocks like COVID-19, right? Um, you know, at, at some point, COVID-19 is a man-made disaster. Right? We, we are making choices in North America and elsewhere not to get the vaccine. Given the realities that we can't stop COVID-19, how can we build resilience to it, right? So again, that's the kind of resilience thinking that I really appreciate, not just understanding um, societies as trying to stop disasters, which is impossible, or prepare for a single shock, which is, again, most physical infrastructure is about one shock, but rather to build a society that's resilient means no matter what happens, Communities in that area, communities in a flooded area, in a heat wave or whatever, they're able to collaborate, communicate, uh, and work together in a way that will bounce them forward. Yes, uh, it's very interesting. How well understood is this this particular uh, more nuanced sense of of resilience? And um, can you give an example of of a, of a good you know uh, a case? I, I I know this kind of getting into the language of build back better and so forth seems to have been co opted in some sense by uh, yes yeah. Uh, uh, particular groups of businesses and indeed governments and so forth. But uh, I think the idea you're talking about is, is, is different. 
Yes, I mean, certainly, again, I completely agree with scholars, critical scholars, who argue, look, this term of resilience or whatever the term sustainability, oftentimes government agencies or businesses will say to a community, you being resilient means we put in less effort into helping you, right? That's not at all what the term has to imply. Certainly they could, again, under a Thatcher or Reagan kind of system, the government might say, you know, NGOs, churches, mosques, and synagogues, it's your job, right? We're going to step back. So what's a good example? Well, I can think of a lot. Uh, let me just give you, let me just give you one that I really enjoy. Um, so uh, this is the city of San Francisco that we're talking about right now. Um, they have a chief resilience officer, Brian Strong, but they also have someone in charge of neighborhood empowerment. That's Daniel Holmesy. Um, and here's what they thought about, right? San Francisco faces a number of shocks, right? If, you, if you've ever been there, of course, homelessness and, and, and the gentrification, the cost of housing, that's a huge shock. They also are going to face a massive seismic shock. As we all know, around 1906, right, there was a huge earthquake in San Francisco, right? Uh, it, was, it was very, very powerful, destroyed a lot of the city. Um, the city has built back. The simple reality, though, is not every building is seismically developed right now to handle that shock that's coming in the future. So what can the city do, right? Could they force everyone out of the city and make them retrofit their homes? That's incredibly expensive and it's probably not going to work. So rather than investing in physical infrastructure here, right, that is to say retrofitting buildings to handle an earthquake, the city began to think through how do we build societal resilience? How do we build ties of cohesion and collaboration? And uh, this is where I really like this example a lot. They have an, uh, they now a program called Neighbor Fest. Neighbor Fest. Here's what will happen. Your block, your neighborhood, proposes to the city to have a party, a party for your neighborhood. The city will help you by providing several thousand dollars in funding to buy food, uh, accessibility, a bounce house for the kids, block off the streets from traffic, help you get permits for all that kind of stuff on several conditions. Your community has to work together internally to plan the party. At the party itself, there has to be a booth talking about these kinds of shocks like earthquakes and so forth. And no one can be excluded. Even the neighbor that you hate, the guy whose dog is always pooping on your lawn or whatever, he has to come too. So this is a really interesting idea. Rather than investing that money, again, in engineering solutions, and of course there are a variety of attempts at engineering solutions right, going on at the same time. But nonetheless, here resilience means there's going to be not only the shock, of course, of the earthquake, which will collapse a lot of buildings, there's going to be fires, a different shock. There's probably going to be a, a week or two that will go by when there's no food available, when cell phone towers will not be working after the batteries die in 48 hours. There'll be no internet left because most of the cables coming in will have snapped underseas, right? So we're going to have not just one shock. Again, maybe, maybe you could retrofit every building, but you can't solve other problems on top of that. So this societal resilience approach says... We can build cohesion here. And again, notice NeighborFest does not say prepare for the event that will kill you all, right? It's not a doom and gloom kind of thing. This is talking about building community connections. And here's the cool thing. Not only does this thing work, that is to say people really love this idea, right? Having a block party and getting together, of course, funded by the city. But here's the thing. There are spillover impacts from having NeighborFest. And here's one of them. When you have to plan a party, that means you have to know what people eat in your community. Are they halal? Are they kosher? Are they vegan? Are they omnivores, right? Who knows? Uh, maybe they eat uh, for tarantulas, whatever it's going to be. You have to plan that, right? So that people can eat stuff. And that means you need to have a committee involved. And you have to get involved. No one can be excluded. Everyone's got to be involved. That means the neighbor in the wheelchair, the neighbor who never leaves him, his or her house, the neighbor on the 15th floor, 
you have to be able to figure out how do we get them to this party, right? And now you're thinking through the kind of problems that disaster managers think about every day, right? <laughs> Which is how do we handle a community with a wide variety of vulnerabilities and accessibility needs? How do we handle mobility questions, right? Once again, let's say elevators don't work, how do we get them down to the 15th floor? Do we bring them the food? Is it going to be a runner who goes up to all the, the top floors and knocks on their doors, right? These are the kind of questions you've got to think about, right? Block by block. Not the problem. What's fascinating, what's fascinating about this as well is uh, the, the, the research you, you've done on your disasters in Japan, and uh, you can talk through, through this uh, fascinating uh, research that the most powerful predictor of recovery was 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 the the actual quality of the social networks and social ties. So these are essential ingredients for uh, recovery and resilience. Exactly. That's right. So so these ideas, right? that you know, building these connections to each other, helping increase trust and cohesion, figuring out who in the community has what needs, right? Those are the kind of things we need to get ready for any kind of shock. And this is why this is important, right? Because neighbor fest isn't just about one shock. They could have said, okay, the only thing we're thinking about is an earthquake. And the only real challenge there are building collapses. So the only solution here is an engineering one. That's not at all what they said, right? We know there'll be a variety of compounded disasters from the earthquake that will require a compound set of responses from communities. The only way to build those, right? No single physical infrastructure can do that. We need to have the social infrastructure, the civic infrastructure in place so people can collaborate and communicate and work together. And I, again, I think that's a great community. Um, there's a lot of other examples I could give, but I think that's a really good one. Fascinating. And and when it comes to this uh, social capital and social ties, you distinguish between different qualities, different kinds. You've got the different kind of bonding, bridging, linking. Can you maybe talk about the different ways in which the different kinds of social capital? And I thought it was also very interesting that some forms are, are better in terms of uh, uh, dealing with the with with the crisis uh, and, and and others in 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 recovery after the crisis. Yes. I mean, I, I think this is really important here. So oftentimes people hear me talk or maybe me and my wife would say obsess about this idea of social capital. And they would say, okay, we got, we got it. People should be friends. That's nice. That's not enough, right? Because there are different kinds of connections with very different resource outcomes. So I'll give you an example. Hopefully we, we all have what we call bonding social ties. These are the most common ties that connect us and people who are like us, meaning we have a linguistic commonality. We can both speak English or Japanese or Hebrew, whatever it is that we're speaking these days. Uh, maybe we have a religious or ethnic or national background. We're both from North America. Uh, maybe we both pray in a synagogue or whatever it is, that is, right? Those are bonding ties. Those are the most common. Those kind of ties are great for a few aspects of disasters and crisis, but they by themselves are not enough. Bonding, if you only had bonding ties during a shock, it would probably help you get through the first part of the shock, that is, let's say, surviving. But the long-term bouncing back aspects would not be very helpful because you also need what we call bridging and linking ties, right? Bridging social ties uh, are also horizontal, like bonding, but they go beyond our ethnic, linguistic, national, religious group identities. So, for example, this might be the friend of a friend that you've actually never met, but your friend said, oh, by the way, Daniel, you're really interested in, I don't know, going to the Netherlands this year before the COVID shuts it down. I've got a friend of a friend who works there at Leiden. You can go talk to her, right? So I've never met that person because my friend knows her and she trusts him. She'll now trust me because she trusts him. This is called the community property, right? So this is an incredibly powerful aspect of social networks. And a long time ago, uh, James Granovetter pointed this out with a job search. Yes. Now, let's say yeah. I only know people who work in academia. 
that'll be useless to a friend of mine who wants a job, let's say, at a car manufacturing facility. But I may have friends of friends who work at the car manufacturing facility, and they can say, oh, yeah, we have a job opening now, and I don't know, mail delivery, have your, you know, your friend's son come talk to us, right? So, yeah, James Grenovetter said this a long time ago, and it's very true. The funny thing is those bridging ties are often called weak or thin ties. Yeah. Those names sound pejorative, like, oh, gosh, I wouldn't want to have a weak tie to you. Actually, those are the powerful ones, right? Because rather than seeing the person every day, you typically only reach out to them in a time of crisis. So I need help with this job. I need help with this research, whatever, right? The third time thing I mentioned was linking ties. Those are vertical ties, bonding and bridging are horizontal. So uh, friends, friends of friends, those people typically have the same levels of power and authority that I do, right? Which is not much. But someone with a vertical tie, they know the prime minister, the head of FEMA, the chief resilience officer, right? The head of the podcast, whatever it's going to be. Those connections bring a different type of resource, and what we found is, and this is around the world, by the way, this is in North America, in Israel, in Japan, in India, all the places that we've done research, bonding, bridging, and linking ties, they're differentiable, meaning you can measure them with different uh, proxies. They have different impact, and ideally, each one of us has a mix of them. So again, let's say for fun, like I used to live in New Orleans, as I mentioned before, I, I lived in a community called Lakeview. There's a great research uh, by Budin and other scholars on how different types of ties within New Orleans meant different trajectories for different neighborhoods, right? Some neighborhoods had fantastic bonding ties. Everyone knew their neighbors. They all prayed together at the same churches. They worked together. They had barbecues, all the kind of stuff, but they didn't have ties to other neighborhoods or other NGOs, and they didn't know anyone in City Hall or the governor's office, right? Those kind of ties were great at getting out okay, Right, helping a neighbor out of a out of a, a, a slowly flooding house, for example, getting them into a car, they weren't helpful in the months and weeks of the rebuilding process. Right, getting information, getting resources. Other communities didn't really know anyone on their block. Right, they didn't really have connections to their neighbors. Maybe they had a long driveway in a gated community, whatever it was, but they knew everybody in the mayor's office, and they had a lot of powerful friends, let's say in D.C. Right, so those communities, in contrast couldn't help each out very much during the, the immediate survival process, getting out, but they really could help out a lot in terms of bringing in resources during the long-term recovery, right? And those kind of research that we've been doing, and, and our, our lab's got some other research. You, you mentioned COVID. We can show that, talk about COVID if you want to. We talked about uh, Japan's 311 disasters using the same kind of uh, three-part type methodology. It's so important because, again, people think, like the idea of, oh, yeah, we should all be friends. It's not that simple, right? <laughs> if only it were that simple. It's yeah. not just being friends. Yeah. It's yeah. recognizing that there are different types of connections that work quite differently. Yes, yes. I mean, you talk about gated communities and so forth. And uh, I found this quite interesting, this idea that uh, you, you looked at these different variables that might predict the success of a community to, you know, to uh, its, its resilience in some sense after crisis. And uh, wealth wasn't the, the one that, 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 that came out the strongest, you know, that the, the wealthier uh, did better, as it were. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that, uh, how did you measure that? Does that include, you know, because we see this uh, tendency of the, you know, the gated community and even at a metaphoric level gated, uh, you know, people moving to New Zealand or buying properties to, you know, <laughs> right. escape and, and that kind of thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. So I'll give a, a different example. This one will come from the Fukushima nuclear disasters in Japan. So as everyone listening knows, uh, back in March uh, 11, 2011, a triple disaster in Japan, an earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns at three reactors. 
150,000 people who lived near the reactor had to evacuate because of radioactive contamination. And you can think about their, their lives, right? Uh, if you put on sort of your sympathy cap, uh, all the kind of feelings they probably had at the time, right? So first of all, they had to flee in about an hour and a half in some cases with no pre-warning. They had to put everything they owned into one bag. That's all they got. And they had to leave their homes. And in some cases, now in a decade, they have not gone back, right? They cannot go back to live. Places like Taba, like Namie, right? So these are communities that evacuated early, and have not been able to go back. So of course they have all kinds of anxieties, right? Obviously about their health, their children's health, their homes slowly being destroyed by nature as it takes over their communities. So my colleagues and I, uh, Yasu Sawada and Keiko Iwasaki, uh, decided it would be great to learn more about the mental uh, state, the, the resilience, so to speak, the mental resilience of these evacuees. So with the permission of them and their mayor, we began interviewing them over time. We had a bunch of hypotheses, right, about what's going to help them um, regain their mental equilibrium. Again, going through all these simultaneous shocks, losing your home, being exposed to radiation, having to get a new job, having to move, right, your children being all thrown out of their school and so forth. So uh, our first two hypotheses were pretty obvious. We thought, well, look, the wealthier members of the community, they have a lot more mobility, right, than the poorest ones. They can get up and go, as you mentioned, maybe they could buy space in New Zealand. Uh, maybe they could get up and move to Tokyo or whatever really easily. Um, or they can, you know, if they really are going through mental shocks, ideally they could use private insurance, right, they paid for themselves, to, for example, uh, purchase time with a therapist or a counselor or whatever. Um, interestingly enough, that kind of wealth had no impact. Being wealthier had no impact whatsoever on the mental recovery of people from this community. That is to see, you could be incredibly wealthy, middle class or poor. All types of what people I just mentioned had the same levels of shocks. And by the way, we measured this through a very easy to use thing called the Kessler Six score. Where we ask a question like, over the past month, how often has it been hard to fall asleep? Or over the past month, how often has your life felt meaningless? Right? Those kind of very easy questions, not complicated, no psychological degree necessary. Um, but, but what did help these communities was not wealth, but rather having neighbors that they knew that went through the evacuation with them and they stayed in touch with. Right? Having that social network right, of bonding ties gave them the ability to think, okay, I'm not the only family going through this horrible thing. I can talk about it. I can stress about it. I can vent about it. Right? And these people understand me. Unlike, let's say, my new neighbors, right? Maybe I did move to Osaka or, or Hokkaido or whatever. My new neighbors have no idea what it means, right, to go through this. But my old neighbors I'm still in touch with, they do, right? So that's a great example right there where, you know, the, these, you know wealth was pretty much not helpful at all. Um, I, I can also give one other quick, quick example um, would be in New Orleans, actually. So in, in New Orleans, uh, one of the poorest neighborhoods with the least amount of education was called Village de l'Est. It was primarily Vietnamese and Vietnamese Americans. It's in the northeast quadrant of the city, up near the Chef Mentor landfill. Um, that community, which again has, I think on average, when I did the studies, like $28,000 a year per family income, which of course is beneath the poverty line um, and less than a high school education, again, beneath the average of education for New Orleans, um, they bounced back and forward, meaning they built back actually new schools, new health centers, an urban garden for sustainability, all within a year when most of us from New Orleans were still in shock, just fighting with our insurance companies. So again, it wasn't that they had money, it was that they were able, again, to communicate, collaborate and communicate and, uh, and cooperate. They worked together to rebuild, not only as it was, right, which was a community that did flood, most of New Orleans flooded, but they built now a health center for their people, a school for their kids, and also an urban garden, an urban farm, a very big one, so they could have uh, food security for the future. 
Right. Very interesting. Is, and, and you mentioned I mean, the, the different kinds of bonding that play different roles. Is there a trade off in some sense? Because in, in, in the world of intergroup dynamics and so forth, sometimes having very strong group dynamics means that it's great for the group, but they don't necessarily get on so well with other groups. <laughs> um, oh, yes. I mean, what you're talking about really is the dark side of bonding social ties. Right. Uh, and in an earlier book that I wrote called called Building Resilience, I try to identify this actually historically. There have been some really, really pretty horrific examples examples of them. Uh, one was in 1923 in Tokyo. Uh, a massive earthquake destroyed half the city. The city was on fire and vigilante groups of Japanese residents began to hunt down and kill Korean residents who were there, um, claiming that they had poisoned the wells. Now, this was a lie. This was not at all true, but um, very strong in-group connections within the Japanese community um, made them see the, the Korean residents as the other. Uh, and I wish I could tell you that's the only example. There are a lot of examples, of course, even on right now, um, when groups, think about neo-Nazi groups, far-right groups, right, scapegoat or, or false identify a group as being responsible. Like someone tried to argue recently that it was, uh, it was immigrants in North America, migrants that were bringing in COVID. That's not true. Uh, those are all attempts when your in-group connections make it easy for you to push away the out-group. And there's some really great research on this also, which basically shows the following. Some, some NGOs, some CSOs, they really do push their own internal interests. That is to say, uh, whatever it is that they're interested in as their own group, they push that. And other groups are not so interesting to them. Other groups, in contrast, let's call them more bridging and linking groups, they want to help everybody in the community. They don't care if you're a member of their group or not a member of their group. If you left or came back, it doesn't matter, right? And we've actually shown in this communities that are more inward focused, that is to say, when everyone's focused on only helping their own group, they don't do as well over time, right? Because each group tries to pull the resources into themselves and it ends up as, as a squabble over resources. They try to divide the pie, right? Rather than enlarging the pie up to make the pie bigger, to make more people accessible to more uh, things, um, they try to make it smaller and smaller pie for everyone else. Yes, so for sure, um, there are dark sides to, to bonding social capital. That's where bridging can really help out here, right? If your group is only helping people that look and not sound like you, maybe you need to spend some time, right, building these bridging ties to groups that are different than us. That's very interesting. Now, we tend to think of uh, communities building up, I suppose, from families to neighborhoods and so forth as physical uh, communities and so forth. What impact is technology having on all this? Yeah, that's that's really great. Um, so so I'll, the, the easiest answer is we don't really know. <laughs> we have some we have some good research. Uh, Courtney Page Tan, she's a professor at Embry Riddle. Uh, she did a fantastic set of papers trying to understand. You know, maybe the most obvious argument would be, well, look, if you're really active online, right? Let's say you're out there and your virtual affinity groups and your uh, Facebook and you're on Twitter and Instagram and all those places. Maybe you're not so active in real life, right? Maybe you're so busy being an online activist, or we call the people slacktivists sometimes, right? Maybe you're not really going out there to vote or give food to the homeless or or whatever. So she did some great research and she pointed out in her research that communities, people in those communities that are active online are also active in real life. So it's not a bifurcation where if you're, you know, again, on Nextdoor, let's say, or on one of those platforms that try to promote civic engagement, you're not active in real life. It's the opposite. You're, you're active in both worlds, the, the virtual community and the IRL, the in real life community. So that's what we know so far from some of the work. Yes. Um, we, also, we also know that those platforms can be incredibly powerful. 
you know, there's, there's another project she's working on right now, looking at, for example, groups like the Cajun Navy. The Cajun Navy were basically informal boat owners in Houston who, when her, the hurricane came through a few years ago, literally got out their cars and their boats um, went around saving people using social media. So they used a variety of apps, uh, of, of applications, Facebook, Nextdoor, and so forth, and said, where is someone that you know trapped? Again, friends are friends. Is your, is your mom, is your grandma in, in Houston? Where is he or she? And they went to get them. Um, again, no, nothing fancy, you know, no, uh, no 911 calls because 911 had gone down because of the flooding. Just a bunch of, we call this a decentralized emergent network, meaning there was no one person telling people what to do. Everyone did their own thing. There was no uh, emergent meaning it wasn't there before. There was no Cajun Navy that operated in, in Houston. That's kind of a joke. The Cajun Navy is a joke because, of course, um, those are people who have their own boats, right? This is not some U.S. Navy, right? So the Cajun Navy showing up and doing this stuff as an emergent network, that's a great example of the power of technologies. We also know that, unfortunately, in India, uh, just a few years back, some of those same platforms caused riots, right, between ethnic groups there. Right. So, again, we have to be careful. We, we don't really know, yes. um, you know, the conditions under which social networks activate in a positive way. Again, this bridging tie, like the Cajun Navy, they didn't care if you're a member of them or not. They didn't care if you speak English, you didn't, if you're from the area, you're a visitor. They just want to save lives. Right. Uh, or or hateful messages on things like Twitter, and Instagram, where you identify someone or a group and say this group is responsible for COVID or whatever it is taking our jobs. You have some false claim and you activate hate against them. We know, uh, for example, thinking about the, the Rwanda genocide right? Their radio was quite powerful. Uh, it call, calling people cockroaches and Yezi, right? Um, so too in history, right? We know that other forms of platforms like, like Hitler's uh, ability to have rallies and also radio programs um, did make people think the same way, the wrong way, but the same way. So I think yeah. there's a lot of research to be done on, on the way that these platforms can help. Yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EGF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. And now we're back to today's episode. You mentioned this idea of this emergent uh, response, these kind of decentralized networks and so forth. And also we talked a little bit before about the role of the, the government or uh, Margaret Thatcher, that there's no such thing as a society and so forth, an extreme view, which still is embedded, I think, <laughs> in many institutions in, in, in the UK and growing even in some. But uh, maybe maybe COVID's changing some of that. In one of your studies, I, I think you you found that, the uh, I think the, the words you use, the study finds that community representation varies considerably among committees and that's negatively related to the prevalence of experts, bureaucrats and business interests. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, (laughs) You could talk about that. Yeah. So this is a really interesting question. One of my colleagues uh, who's now in Europe, um, Andrew Littlejohn, raised the question of, you know, who is making decisions 
after a major shock, right? This was again after the 2011 Japan disaster. So, you know, after a major shock, all kinds of money gets spent. We're seeing this right now, right? In North America with, with COVID spending, for example, on vaccines and a PP distribution and all that kind of stuff. Um, so who gets to make those decisions? So we began poking around. Our intuition was the following. It seemed to us, and again, this was those of us working in this field, that a small group of individuals had what looked like a disproportionate amount of control or influence on how things were going, at least in Japan. And we wondered, could we systematize that? So what we began to do was we assembled a list of every single post-disaster committee we could find. I think we ended up with, with several hundred members, maybe around 700 or 800 different members. We put their names into what's called a correlation matrix, right? That would mean if I'm on a committee and for you're on a committee, right? There's, an, there's a sort of a dot between the two of us. But if we're never on a committee together, there's no dot between us, there's no connection. We began to look to what degree are a certain smaller number of people on most of these committees that was the first stage. And then later we did try to figure out, okay, and what impact does that have, by the way, on the, on the city where they're operating, right? What does it make a difference in your city if only, let's say, who knows, 1% uh, of the population is represented by one field and none of the other community? So what, was, what we found was the following, that uh, engineers, male engineers, were overly represented on these committees, that there are way more of them on these committees than a random sample would have given us. And if you just look at, for example, you know, jobs in Japan by population or gender, um, there are far too few, for example, local NGOs, nonprofits, women, all the kind of groups that you hope would be on there, having a voice in, okay, well, look, our community had this problem beforehand. Again, this is bouncing forward. How do we build a different community now? Um, rather, engineers who often, and for better or for worse, take a physical infrastructure approach, they're the ones who decided, in many cases, where that money was going to be spent. So we, we did this using a social network analysis, found these very, um, let's, let's call them skewed uh, membership uh, outcomes, and then looked, uh, interestingly enough, at what happened afterwards. Okay, so what's the consequence then? And what we found was, if you had local scholars beyond just, for example, the engineer on your, uh, on your committee, and those scholars were interested in what we're calling right now this idea of the physical, sorry, the social infrastructure, right? Building community centers, right? Building community gardens, building parks, all that kind of stuff. The recovery actually went better. So we, we, we measured then these communities, for example, population recovery, economic recovery. So it wasn't just that, for example, having an engineer might guide you to build, let's say, a large scale wall, right? Or to lift every city building up, right? Or to do whatever, some large scale earthwork project. But it also was, those, those approaches to recovery might actually dampen what people really want, right? Do I care so much if there's a 200-mile seawall, or am I more interested in being able to see my friends at a park nearby, right? Do I care if my building is lifted six feet off the ground, or am I more interested in feeling I've got a voice in the decision-making process? So our data showed us that, if, that absolutely having voices there, having community investments, those made the difference for people trying to come back. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, uh, tied in a little bit, um, because most governance doesn't operate like that, really, does it? Uh, in terms of, <laughs> you could say. That, that's so, pretty uh, cold, but pretty true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm interested uh, in, in, in coming back to this question of the role of government, because um, I think I, I saw some research that suggests that uh, governments can make things worse. <laughs> Surprise! Yes. Who knew? Who yes. Knew? Um, so, so what are some lessons uh, or ways of thinking about uh, the, the? You know, I guess this is a governance issue in, in part as well, um, and thinking about having you know bringing in different voices as well, but uh, the, the balancing those and and and, and yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So one of my colleagues in Japan, Shingo Nagamatsu, wrote a great article called The Paradox of Reconstruction. And he also wondered this question, okay, well, how are we spending literally billions of dollars right afterwards? Oh, how, sorry, how, when I say we, I mean the government. How is the government just choosing to spend billions of dollars? Now you can imagine, right, for most government agencies, the easiest investments are ones they've known before the disaster. So for example, if you're a road building agency, what are you gonna build after the shock? It's not gonna be community centers, it's gonna be roads, right? If yeah. you build ports or bridges, it's right. So what it turned out was, first of all, and he looked at this also, most infrastructure that was built afterwards had already been planned. It wasn't that this was a response to the earthquake or the tsunami or the meltdowns in Japan. It was that this was already in the books as the next project. And the disaster gave them an excuse to accelerate that building. So first of all, you have to recognize how disconnected, right, that kind of planning is to what we hope will happen. Here's a second terrifying outcome from his research. He found in communities that had the government invest in these kind of big projects, right, we call them sort of mega projects, the, the people coming back actually slowed. Fewer people stayed or came back to the communities where they spent this more top-down kind of money. So he called this the reconstruction paradox because of course the government thinks, well, look, you know, we're building these fantastic ports and bridges and dams and seawalls. Look at us, you know, we're, gonna, we're doing a great job. And the community said, well, that's great, but I don't really care about that, right? What I care about is, is does my kid have a school he or she can go to? Is there a park I can go see my friends in, right? Do I feel I'm part of this community? The more money being spent in top-down ways, the more shut out people felt. So he called this the reconstruction paradox because exactly in those cities, we had this massive amount of money being spent, fewer people came back, which is really, I think, you know, for the government should take a moment and think about that. If your only vision of post-disaster reconstruction is building back as was or as planned, right, you're not you're really going to capture local imaginations. Yes, yes, very, very interesting. I'd like to go on to the question of building resilience, uh, you know, in advance of, of, of crises and so forth. Um, I mean, I, there, there, there is an idea I've seen around that, you know, resilient, resilience costs money somehow. That, uh, and there's an idea of redundancy, you know, that if you build in redundancy, that that gives you capacity to deal with, you know, crises and so forth. And that's costly. And uh, the driver of, of many infrastructure projects, from the physical infrastructure projects, but generally is, you know, cost and efficiency and those kind of variables. Um, I know there was an idea of frugal resilience, but can you talk a little bit about uh, that idea? Yes, I'd love to. So, so I mean, a lot of things. So first, uh, a lot of the work being done about costs for programming is old school cost benefit analysis, right? So again, you, you think about building a road, how do you measure if it's a good investment? How many people will use that road, right? So you build a road, it's a mile long and 10,000 people will use it a day. You can, you can calculate what the per person costs of you building it at, a, at whatever, a million dollars per mile. That's great. Um, but what we often don't think about are two different things. One is equity outcomes, and the other are resilience outcomes. If you built that mile long road through the middle of a community, and this sounds outlandish maybe, but it's happened so many times in North American planning. You literally took a highway and built it through the middle of a New York borough, right? Through a neighborhood or a Boston borough. This also happened in Boston. And you completely divided that community in half so that literally kids cannot cross the street anymore because there are cars going at 75 miles per hour. You've done two things. You've changed equity concerns in the community, the equity costs. 
and you've changed the social resilience of the community. So my lab now is thinking much more about not the old-fashioned ways of you know measuring cost-benefit analysis. You know how much does this seawall get us if we don't rebuild you know the buildings nearby? But if you build the seawall and you're pushing those same floodwaters simply two miles downstream to a poor, less affluent community that doesn't have the engineering that you do, what is the real society cost? Because guess what's going to happen? Someone's going to help rebuild that community in the future. That's going to be different money, right? So you've just actually increased this. This is actually a paper that we just saw There's in the in the Bay Area, uh, in in the Cal- California Bay Area, Oakland, you know, Oakland, uh, San Francisco, and so forth. Richmond. There was a plan to build a seawall. Thank God they actually did the numbers first, and they figured out they could certainly build that seawall. It would simply push all the water, all the floodwaters, into poor, low-lying communities nearby that would then not be able to afford all the damage done to them, right? So that's a new way of thinking about this. Not about cost-benefit, pure, you know, pure math but equity and societal resilience. I was fortunate enough to be part of a process in Louisiana called the Coastal Protection Resilience Association, CPRA. They also are thinking about this in terms of if we just think about this as building a wall, as opposed to, let's say, relocating individuals or helping communities make decisions, tough decisions, about what lands to save and what lands literally to sacrifice to keep the other people around, that's a much better use of, of spending our money than just telling people, yeah, we're building a wall or you know, we're going to raise this road. So yeah, I think this idea of cost benefit for resilience should begin to take a newer perspective. Right? We have the, we have modeling now; we can do great stuff. Up, literally pushing our our, our maps, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. How much water will be there? How much heat will be there? Uh, but also multiple different shocks, and this is the challenge too. Again, I think about a road as a, as an engineer only in terms of its use by people on that road. Well, if I could have built instead of bike path and green space there, reduced car traffic, right? What would be the alternative? to the road itself. Again, this is, this is the societal equity, societal resilience perspective. So yeah, I, I've seen a lot of attempts um, to, to think more critically about what is it that we're actually measuring when we claim a new project that we're proposing is cost-effective. What are the yeah, actual costs uh, of society? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so much fascinating material here. And it comes to a question, I suppose, how do you measure resilience? <laughs> how do you think about it now? Because in your surveys and so forth, obviously you, you use uh, various different tools to, to measure different things. Are, are there some well-established uh, measures that you respect that you could you know, look at a community and, and measure it on, on various different dimensions and say, this is a, you know, this, this community has a high level of resilience or resilience index. Are, are these ideas around? Yes, absolutely. And there, there's a lot of them. I think one of my colleagues cataloged something like 47 different indices out there, uh, ranging from uh, a well-known woman, Susan Cutter. She has, this, uh, she has the uh, uh, Society of Vulnerability Index, SOV or SOV. Uh, there's BRIC, B-R-I-C. There's COBRA, C-O-B-R-A. So let me just back up from those and say two, two ideas. You know, one is, first of all, the best measures of resilience always unfortunately come after the shock, Yes. right? Yes. There's to say, for example, in Colorado, after the fires and floods there in Leon's in 2013, we could measure the number of individuals coming back. We could measure their mental health, right? We could measure their, uh, their presence or absence in schools. We can do all kinds of stuff. That's one of the best ways to do it. Um, but surely, sorry, about- just to jump in there, but surely now with your research, we know that social ties and trust are very important variables. Yes. Or can we not look at proxies like that? 
Yes, exactly. So I was going to say, so because we know now from looking backwards, right, how these ideas of cohesion and trust are so critical, we actually built one using publicly available data. This is Dean Kine and I uh, built a project called SOCI, S-O-C-I, Social Capital Index. And by the way, for your listeners, um, all the data for North America is available online for free. They can just download that if they want to. And as well, we've given uh, all the details on how to make their own census block measurement in Japan or India, wherever they are right now. So yes, so we, uh, Dean Kine and I have measures for bonding, bridging, and linking ties. So you can think about a community, a neighborhood, a city, not just in terms of are we friends, again, that very non-nuanced approach, but rather how connected are the individuals to their neighbors and friends? How connected are they to their decision makers? And how much connection do they have to people different than them, right? So those are really quite different than measuring, for example, social vulnerability. And this is, I think, an important point, right? Think about the heat wave that Chicago had in 1995 that Eric Klenenberg wrote about in his great book, Heat Wave, right? He pointed out it's not just being vulnerable that made a difference. There are many elderly people there in Chicago in 1995 who did not die during the heat wave. What really got to people, what made them more likely to die was being elderly and isolated, not having a social network. So if you think about this, right, most of our measures that we're using right now about vulnerability are just about, you know, is the person elderly or not? You know, are they speaking English as a second language? That isn't enough. We need to know better, is the community one where someone who is elderly, let's say from another country, maybe they're a recent migrant from Syria or Afghanistan, right? And they've now moved to Boston. We want to know, will the community take care of them? Not if they're elderly and, let's say, speaking English as a second language, but are the elderly and connected or not? And that's why we think this SOCI, S-O-C-I, is such a critical way to understand our society and to predict, yes, the degree to which a community or society is resilient. Fascinating. But how well established are these ideas? Um, Well, I mean, that's good news and bad news. The good news is, I, I know, uh, because I've got a really amazing colleagues, for example, in Cambridge, uh, John Balduck uh, is literally building uh, a social capital map for Cambridge, Massachusetts, to understand there, again, hot spots and cold spots where they should invest in sources. I know the Australian Red Cross has now published several different full-length, 100-plus uh, page reviews for their for their staff and for the society on the importance of these kinds of social ties. I mentioned San Francisco already. I mentioned Boulder, Colorado. There are a number of small-scale communities around the world. And Australia, Red Cross, even bigger, doing this work in New Zealand's, uh, for example, Remo, W-R-E-M-O. Um, on, on the larger scale, though, right, uh, is the average bureaucrat, is the average civil servant working this field using social capital yet? I, I, I couldn't say yes. I'd love to say yes. I, I can't say yes. But we do now have growing networks, for example. Um, the Rockefeller's Resilient Cities Network, which, as you know, now is defunct, but for a while gave money and support and information to these chief resilience officers around the world, many of whom are still working now, independent from the Rockefeller. Foundation. That was a great way to build knowledge and share knowledge. And our Boston uh, CRO, who was Dr. Atia Martin, a graduate Northeastern, for example, she uh, did this full time. Her full time focus was on social connections, cohesion, especially in the areas of race. How do we make sure Boston is better connected? So, yes, I do see movement on the needle, um, not necessarily around the world at the same speed, but I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Very interesting. What about variability by crisis and by 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 particular uh, kinds of issues? For example, food. I don't know what the cliche or the the idea is that we're, we're three three meals away from a revolution or this idea. But you know, food is obviously something that uh, and fresh water and stuff like that, uh, very immediate and and uh, needs to to be dealt with right away uh, and so forth. And presumably, uh, you know, a, a nuclear crisis or a meltdown is is uh, you know different from a flood and so forth. Or not so much. I'm just wondering to what extent is it useful uh, or the transfer of ideas by kind of domain in that sense? 
Yeah, I mean, I would say having worked in those, everything you just mentioned, right, nuclear disasters, floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, uh, I would say that, in fact, this concept of social capital, this idea that the bonds, bridges, and links that we have matter in every crisis is, in fact, universal. So, of course, by the way, in India, Japan, and America, the way bonding ties manifest will be quite different, right? Japan has chonaikai, neighborhood associations. There's no equivalent here in North America. Uh, India has caste councils, Urpanjayat. In North America, we have a prolifera of, of faith-based organizations. So again, different societies organize these in different ways, but the underlying core universality is there in that, again, uh, people living in, let's say, Chennai in, in, on the East Coast in Tamil Nadu, they also have bonding, bridging, and linking ties, and those act the same way during, let's say, the yes, 2014 yeah, yeah. Ocean Tsunami as yeah. they did in, let's say, Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Very interesting. So what are some uh, good ways to think about uh, building social ties? Yes. So uh, we have a lot of things we like to think about. Now, one is, again, neighbor to neighbor. Do you know your neighbors? Most of us, unfortunately, in urban centers don't. Uh, simply knocking on that door, if you missed move-in date a few, a few years ago, uh, if you forgot their name, you know, knock, say, hi, I'm Daniel. You know, here's uh, whatever appropriate food or, or, or a small gift. Uh, nice to meet you. What's your names? Uh, learn about them. Like, where are they from? What do they need? And again, do they have a pet? Are they on dialysis? Right? Are they in a wheelchair? That information could be critical if there's a flood or fire tomorrow. Um, next stage up, we have neighborhood, neighborhood fests. Neighborfest, like we mentioned, San Francisco. Can you bring the neighborhood together? Can you have an event, a May Day, an outdoor event, a kids' day, uh, whatever it's going to be that would help people in your community get together? Uh, then think about things like urban planning and urban design. We know from a long time ago, right? Jane Jacobs, uh, Oscar Newman, the way we build our social infrastructure. Are there parks? Are there open spaces? Is it built for cars or for riders, right? Um, those things make a big difference in how we organize. Um, civic engagement. Does your city, community, neighborhood do is encourage everyone to show up? Can people who work or have kids show up to every meeting on zoning or the school board? Uh, can people who are or working two jobs show up? Is there a way to virtually to, get, to engage them? Um, think about community currencies and time banking. Uh, how can we engage people by giving incentives to participate? So everything I've just mentioned, by the way, all those five programs, we have found all of them work. Um, they're not magic bullets. They don't solve problems. But on average, they can increase trust around 15 to 20% over a year of operation. We have a great program in Japan called Ibasho that brings these all together uh, that now operating in Nepal and the Philippines. So that's another good example that we've measured where having a deliberate bottom-up community-based program really can increase resilience. Right. That's fascinating because uh, the, the, the kind of idea of bonding and bridging, uh, I, I guess, uh, very much at the heart of that. What about linking and what about, um, you know, you're a great community, but you're in a, a country that's uh, incompetent uh, or uh, corrupt or some mix of that? Or Yeah. So, so link, linking ties may, may be extra governmental. Right. So it could be. And this happened when I was doing work in India, that local communities had ties, for example, to the International Red Cross. Or they had a friend of a friend who was working at World Vision, right? So it didn't have to be to the Indian government to get help. It could even be to an international NGO or to a, or, or a national NGO. So these are the moments when, yes, it could be that you're living in a society. Maybe you're living in Haiti, right, most recently. Uh, and, and in Haiti, unfortunately, the government, since the time of slavery and the French demanded reparations, have not really been able to organize well. But that, that might mean that your linking ties would be to some international NGO, uh, you know, Catholic Relief Services, for example. And that might be what helps you get through, um, even in a society that doesn't have a good governance structure. Yeah, very interesting. And it's talking to you, I realize that the difference between resilience and regeneration, because you hear a lot of people talking about regeneration. I think this is a coming idea we're going to see more of. And Paul Hawkins got a big book on this. There's, there's quite a lot of work going on there. Because actually, regeneration is embodied in some sense in the, in, in the, the, the nuanced way in which you think about resilience. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we have so many areas that we should be connecting the dots, right? Uh, you know, every urban designer, every person thinking through transportation, right? This idea of resilience shouldn't be some small silo, right? That somehow, oh yeah, by the way, the community matters. It should be baked into everything that we do, right? Every time we design a new structure, a new community, a new area, we should be thinking, how will this impact social connections in the area? Are people's voices being heard? Is this a thing that people wanted? Or is this some old plan from the 60s that's being revived, right? Um, you know, where is this coming from? What will this do to community members? I think if we can do that more regularly, uh, then we've got a much better chance of this working. Yes, this question of voices, though, as I mentioned earlier, is, is a difficult one. You know, the, the powers that be, the, the structure of power in society, the concentration, whatever you call it, the 1%, the, you know, all of these things that militate in some sense against in, you know, individual voices and bottom-up approaches. Do you ha- have you come across any ways in which you know, communities are, are, have got together to be bigger communities and have worked on these questions? Yeah, uh, you know, so again, I have this small list of communities that I've spent a lot of time with. I've certainly seen this in the Ibasho projects in Masakicho in Japan, in San Francisco, uh, in in Littleton, uh, New Zealand, for example. Uh, You know, there are ways there of increasing civic engagement, of getting people who wouldn't normally show up to a school board meeting, an environmental meeting to show up, and also to get them to interact. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan. You know, people often talk about, you know, social engineering. It's a nonsensical term. First of all, engineers and social are so di- so disparate from each other so many <laughs> times, right? But what this would mean basically is we really want to think about how are people getting along? People they don't know very well, different than them. Think about the polarization in North America right now or, or the Black Lives Matter movement and, and how uh, much opposition some of those hit. We want to think about not just you know, building something new, but engaging and building social fabric. And all of those are things that we can do. Again, not through like the Priscilla top-down modernist you know, art, concrete architecture, but rather through areas, through spaces, through connectivity that makes us think about the other person more often. Brilliant. And what cities do you think are doing this very well? I know um, it, it's. Uh, well, I, I, I interviewed Kate Raworth, who, who's who's developed this the idea of the donut, and some cities in Europe that are, are you know moving that idea forward uh, very practically. Amsterdam, Barcelona. Um, when yeah. it comes to these kind of questions of social capital and and thinking, you know, having uh, people thinking about this uh, the resilience question. You know, you mentioned San Francisco. Are there a few cities around the world that you think are are very cutting edge? I would say Rotterdam has done an amazing job, right? They, they can have faced f- floods for literally centuries now. Uh, and if you read their newest resilience plan, it is not about physical infrastructure anymore. It is now about social infrastructure and civic engagement. To what degree are citizens and citizen science, school children, the elderly part of the plan? Again, not just about floating houses and building berms and dikes, but how do we get people involved? How do we get their voices heard? How do we make sure they see water as the future? And water will be part of this, what's going on over time, not going to be able to stop that, right? So how do we, again, engage with water, not as an enemy, but as part of the landscape? And I think Rotterdam's doing great. I also, I mentioned Boston and San Francisco doing pretty well. Um, also, Wellington, New Zealand, again, they will be facing an earthquake and tsunami in the future. Um, their local disaster managers have built a bottom-up community-based response, where rather than telling everyone doom and gloom stories about the bad things that are going to happen, they've embedded in local groups, CSOs, NGOs, FBOs, all these local groups, and built trust with them to the degree that almost a tenth of all internet traffic goes through their page every day, which is pretty amazing to think about. Um, that's where they go for trusted information, even before the disaster strikes. And if you can do that, I think you really are on the path to resilience. Fascinating. Fascinating. What's next for you, Daniel? 
I'm working on a book now, actually, uh, on why societies tend to overinvest in this physical infrastructure and underinvest in the social and civic infrastructure. Uh, that's going to be a project for a year or two. Uh, I've got a few side projects I'm working on, focus on Boston spending as well. How are we preparing for climate change here in the city? Uh, and also thinking a lot about, you know, how do we in the future uh, measure spending and outcomes? I mentioned before the cost-benefit analysis, the old school kind of stuff. Can we have a way of integrating uh, social and social resilience and equity into even a transportation project, right? Building that new road, building that new dam. Fascinating. Fascinating. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today and share the wonderful work you're doing with full of insights and really important work. And I wish you all the best with your ongoing work, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Catherine Hayhoe's new book, Saving Us, a climate scientist's case for hope and healing in a divided world. One of climate change's most effective communicators, Catherine provides inspired guidance on how to navigate all sides of the conversation on a topic that is currently one of the most politicized and divisive. Based on the science and illustrated by vivid stories from her personal experience, Catherine shows why we need to go beyond facts and statistics and begin the conversation with shared values, connect the issue to our individual identities and inspire collective action. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.